0: Chapter Six, Part Two of The Stones of Venice, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Stones of Venice, Volume Two by John Ruskin. The Nature of Gothic, Part Two. And now, reader. Look round this English room of yours, about which you have been proud so often, because the work of it was so good and strong, and the ornaments of it so finished. Examine again all those accurate mouldings, and perfect polishings, and unerring adjustments of the seasoned wood and tempered steel. Many a time you have exulted over them, and thought how great England was, because her slightest work was done so thoroughly. Alas if read rightly, these perfectnesses are signs of a slavery in our England a thousand times more bitter and more degrading than that of the scourged African or Helot Greek. Men may be beaten, chained, tormented, yoked like cattle, slaughtered like summer flies, and yet remain in one sense, and the best sense, free. But to smother their souls within them, to blight and hew into rotting pollards the suckling branches of their human intelligence, to make the flesh and skin which, after the worm's work on it, is to see God, into leathern thongs to yoke machinery with. This it is to be slave-masters indeed, and there might be more freedom in England, though her feudal lord's lightest words were worth men's lives, and though the blood of the vexed husbandman dropped in the furrows of her fields, than there is while the animation of her multitudes is sent like fuel to feed the factory smoke and the strength of them is given daily to be wasted into the fineness of a web or racked into the exactness of a line and on the other hand go forth again to gaze upon the old cathedral front where you have smiled so often at the fantastic ignorance of the old sculptors examine once more those ugly goblins and formless monsters and stern statues anatomyless and rigid but do not mock at them for they are signs of the life and liberty of every workman who struck the stone a freedom of thought and rank in scale of being such as no laws no charters no charities can secure but which it must be the first aim of all europe at this day to regain for her children let me not be thought to speak wildly or extravagantly it is verily this degradation of the operative into a machine which more than any other evil of the times is leading the mass of the nations everywhere into vain incoherent destructive struggling for a freedom of which they cannot explain the nature to themselves Their universal outcry against wealth and against nobility is not forced from them either by the pressure of famine or the sting of mortified pride. These do much, and have done much in all ages, but the foundations of society were never yet shaken as they are at this day. It is not that men are ill-fed, but that they have no pleasure in the work by which they make their bread and therefore look to wealth as the only means of pleasure it is not that men are pained by the scorn of the upper classes but they cannot endure their own for they feel that the kind of labour to which they are condemned is verily a degrading one and makes them less than men never had the upper classes so much sympathy with the lower or charity for them as they have at this day and yet never were they so much hated by them for of old the separation between the noble and the poor was merely a wall built by law now it is a veritable difference in level of standing a precipice between upper and lower grounds in the field of humanity and there is pestilential air at the bottom of it i know not if a day is ever to come when the nature of right freedom will be understood and when men will see that to obey another man to labor for him yield reverence to him or to his place is not slavery it is often the best kind of liberty liberty from care the man who says to one go and he goeth and to another come and he cometh has in most cases more sense of restraint and difficulty than the man who obeys him the movements of the one are hindered by the burden on his shoulder of the other by the bridle on his lips THERE IS NO WAY BY WHICH THE BURDEN MAY BE LIGHTENED. BUT WE NEED NOT SUFFER FROM THE BRIDLE IF WE DO NOT CHAMP AT IT. TO YIELD REVERENCE TO ANOTHER, TO HOLD OURSELVES AND OUR LIVES AT HIS DISPOSAL, IS NOT SLAVERY. OFTEN IT IS THE NOBLEST STATE IN WHICH A MAN CAN LIVE IN THIS WORLD. THERE IS INDEED A REVERENCE WHICH IS servile—that THAT IS TO SAY, IRRATIONAL OR SELFISH. BUT THERE IS ALSO NOBLE REVERENCE that is to say, reasonable and loving, and a man is never so noble as when he is reverent in this kind. Nay, even if the feeling pass the bounds of mere reason, so that it be loving, a man is raised by it. Which had, in reality, most of the serf nature in him, the Irish peasant who was lying in wait yesterday for his landlord, with his musket muzzle thrust through the ragged hedge, or that old mountain servant who, two hundred years ago, at inver gave up his own life and the lives of his seven sons for his chief, and as each fell, calling forth his brother to the death, another for Hector. And therefore, in all ages and all countries, reverence has been paid, and sacrifice made by men to each other, not only without complaint, but rejoicingly and famine, and peril, and sword, and all evil, and all shame, have been borne willingly in the causes of masters and kings. For all these gifts of the heart ennobled the men who gave, not less than the men who received them. And nature prompted, and God rewarded the sacrifice. But to feel their souls withering within them, unthanked, to find their whole being sunk into an unrecognized abyss, To be counted off into a heap of mechanism, numbered with its wheels, and weighed with its hammer strokes. This nature bade not, this God blesses not, this humanity for no long time is able to endure. We have much studied and much perfected of late the great civilized invention of the division of labor, only we give it a false name. It is not truly speaking the labor that is divided, but the men divided into mere segments of men, broken into small fragments and crumbs of life, so that all the little piece of intelligence that is left in a man is not enough to make a pin or a nail, but exhausts itself in making the point of a pin or the head of a nail. Now it is a good and desirable thing, truly, to make many pins in a day. But if we could only see with what crystal sand their points were polished. Sand of human soul, much to be magnified before it can be discerned for what it is. We should think there might be some loss in it also. And the great cry that rises from all our manufacturing cities, louder than their furnace blast, is all in very deed for this, that we manufacture everything there except men. We blanch cotton, and strengthen steel, and refine sugar, and shape pottery, but to brighten TO STRENGTHEN, TO REFINE, OR TO FORM A SINGLE LIVING SPIRIT NEVER ENTERS INTO OUR ESTIMATE OF ADVANTAGES, AND ALL THE EVIL TO WHICH THAT CRY IS URGING OUR MYRIADS CAN BE MET ONLY IN ONE WAY, NOT BY TEACHING NOR PREACHING, FOR TO TEACH THEM IS BUT TO SHOW THEM THEIR MISERY, AND TO PREACH TO THEM, IF WE DO NOTHING MORE THAN PREACH, IS TO MOCK AT IT. IT CAN BE MET ONLY BY A RIGHT UNDERSTANDING ON THE PART OF ALL CLASSES of what kinds of labour are good for men, raising them and making them happy, by a determined sacrifice of such convenience, or beauty, or cheapness, as is to be got only by the degradation of the workman, and by equally determined demand for the products and results of healthy and ennobling labour. And how, it will be asked, are these products to be recognised, and this demand to be regulated? Easily by the observance of three broad and simple rules one never encourage the manufacture of any article not absolutely necessary in the production of which invention has no share two never demand an exact finish for its own sake but only for some practical or noble end three never encourage imitation or copying of any kind except for the sake of preserving record of great works The second of these principles is the only one which directly rises out of the consideration of our immediate subject, but I shall briefly explain the meaning and extent of the first also, reserving the enforcement of the third for another place. 1. Never encourage the manufacture of anything not necessary in the production of which invention has no share. For instance, glass beads are utterly unnecessary and there is no design or thought employed in their manufacture. They are formed by first drawing out the glass into rods. These rods are chopped up into fragments of the size of beads by the human hand, and the fragments are then rounded in the furnace. The men who chop up the rods sit at their work all day, their hands vibrating with a perpetual and exquisitely timed palsy, and the beads dropping beneath their vibration like hail neither they nor the men who draw out the rods or fuse the fragments have the smallest occasion for the use of any single human faculty and every young lady therefore who buys glass beads is engaged in the slave trade and a much more cruel one than that which we have so long been endeavouring to put down but glass cups and vessels may become the subjects of exquisite invention and if in buying these we pay for their invention that is to say, for the beautiful form or colour, or engraving, and not for mere finish of execution, we are doing good to humanity. So, again, the cutting of precious stones, in all ordinary cases, requires little exertion of any mental faculty, some tact and judgment in avoiding flaws, and so on, but nothing to bring out the whole mind. Every person who wears cut jewels merely for the sake of their value is, therefore, a slave-driver. But the working of the goldsmith and the various designing of grouped jewellery and enamel-work may become the subject of the most noble human intelligence. Therefore, money spent in the purchase of well-designed plate, of precious engraved vases, cameos or enamels, does good to humanity and in work of this kind jewels may be employed to heighten its splendour and their cutting is then a price paid for the attainment of a noble end and thus perfectly allowable i shall perhaps press this law farther elsewhere but our immediate concern is chiefly with the second namely never to demand an exact finish when it does not lead to a noble end for observe i have only dwelt upon the rudeness of gothic or any other kind of imperfectness as admirable, where it was impossible to get design or thought without it. If you are to have the thought of a rough and untaught man, you must have it in a rough and untaught way. But from an educated man, who can without effort express his thoughts in an educated way, take the graceful expression and be thankful. Only get the thought, And do not silence the peasant because he cannot speak good grammar, or until you have taught him his grammar. Grammar and refinement are good things, both, only be sure of the better thing first. And thus in art, delicate finish is desirable from the greatest masters, and is always given by them. In some places, Michelangelo, Leonardo, Phidias, Perugino, Turner, all finished with the most exquisite care and the finish they give always leads to the fuller accomplishment of their noble purposes. But lower men than these cannot finish, for it requires consummate knowledge to finish consummately, and then we must take their thoughts as they are able to give them. So the rule is simple. Always look for invention first, and after that for such execution as will help the invention, and as the inventor is capable of without painful effort and no more above all demand no refinement of execution where there is no thought for that is slaves work unredeemed rather choose rough work than smooth work so only that the practical purpose be answered and never imagine there is reason to be proud of anything that may be accomplished by patience and sandpaper i shall only give one example which however will show the reader what i mean from the manufacture already alluded to, that of glass. Our modern glass is exquisitely clear in its substance, true in its form, accurate in its cutting. We are proud of this. We ought to be ashamed of it. The old Venice glass was muddy, inaccurate in all its forms, and clumsily cut, if at all. And the old Venetian was justly proud of it, For there is this difference between the English and Venetian workmen, that the former thinks only of accurately matching his patterns, and getting his curves perfectly true and his edges perfectly sharp, and becomes a mere machine for rounding curves and sharpening edges, while the old Venetian cared not a whit whether his edges were sharp or not, but he invented a new design for every glass that he made, and never moulded a handle or a lip without a new fancy in it. And therefore, though some Venetian glass is ugly and clumsy enough, when made by clumsy and uninventive workmen, other Venetian glass is so lovely in its forms that no price is too great for it, and we never see the same form in it twice. Now you cannot have the finish and the varied form, too, if the workman is thinking about his edges. He cannot be thinking of his design if of his design he cannot think of his edges choose whether you will pay for the lovely form or the perfect finish and choose at the same moment whether you will make the worker a man or a grindstone nay but the reader interrupts me if the workman can design beautifully i would not have him kept at the furnace let him be taken away and made a gentleman and have a studio and design his glass there and i will have it blown and cut for him by common workmen so that i will have my design and my finish too all ideas of this kind are founded upon two mistaken suppositions the first that one man's thoughts can be or ought to be executed by another man's hands the second that manual labour is a degradation when it is governed by intellect on a large scale and in work determinable by line and rule it is indeed both possible and necessary that the thoughts of one man should be carried out by the labour of others in this sense i have already defined the best architecture to be the expression of the mind of manhood by the hands of childhood but on a smaller scale and in a design which cannot be mathematically defined One man's thoughts can never be expressed by another, and the difference between the spirit of touch, of the man who is inventing, and of the man who is obeying directions, is often all the difference between a great and a common work of art. How wide the separation is between original and second-hand execution, I shall endeavour to show elsewhere it is not so much to our purpose here as to mark the other and more fatal error of despising manual labour when governed by intellect for it is no less fatal an error to despise it when thus regulated by intellect than to value it for its own sake we are always in these days endeavouring to separate the two we want one man to be always thinking and another to be always working and we call one a gentleman and the other an operative whereas the workman ought often to be thinking, and the thinker often to be working, and both should be gentlemen, in the best sense. As it is, we make both ungentle, the one envying, the other despising his brother, and the mass of society is made up of morbid thinkers and miserable workers. Now it is only by labour that thought can be made healthy, and only by thought that labour can be made happy and the two cannot be separated with impunity. It would be well if all of us were good handicraftsmen in some kind, and the dishonour of manual labour done away with altogether, so that though there should still be a trenchant distinction of race between nobles and commoners, there should not, among the latter, be a trenchant distinction of employment, as between idle and working men, or between men of liberal and illiberal professions. All professions should be liberal, and there should be less pride felt in peculiarity of employment, and more in excellence of achievement. And yet more, in each several profession, no master should be too proud to do its hardest work. The painter should grind his own colours. The architect work in the mason's yard with his men. The master manufacturer be himself a more skilful operative than any man in his mills and the distinction between one man and another be only in experience and skill, and the authority and wealth which these must naturally and justly obtain. I should be led far from the matter in hand if I were to pursue this interesting subject. Enough, I trust, has been said to show the reader that the rudeness or imperfection which at first rendered the term Gothic one of reproach is indeed, when rightly understood, one of the most noble characters of Christian architecture and not only a noble but an essential one it seems a fantastic paradox but it is nevertheless a most important truth that no architecture can be truly noble which is not imperfect and this is easily demonstrable for since the architect whom we will suppose capable of doing all in perfection, cannot execute the whole with his own hands, he must either make slaves of his workmen in the old Greek and present English fashion, and level his work to a slave's capacities, which is to degrade it, or else he must take his workmen as he finds them, and let them show their weaknesses together with their strength, which will involve the Gothic imperfection, but render the whole work as noble as the intellect of the age can make it but the principle may be stated more broadly still. I have confined the illustration of it to architecture, but I must not leave it as if true of architecture only. Hitherto I have used the words imperfect and perfect merely to distinguish between work grossly unskillful and work executed with average precision and science. And I have been pleading that any degree of unskillfulness should be admitted, so only that the labourer's mind had room for expression but accurately speaking no good work whatever can be perfect and the demand for perfection is always a sign of a misunderstanding of the ends of art this for two reasons both based on everlasting laws the first that no great man ever stops working till he has reached his point of failure that is to say his mind is always far in advance of his powers of execution and the latter will now and then give way in trying to follow it besides that he will always give to the inferior portions of his work only such inferior attention as they require and according to his greatness he becomes so accustomed to the feeling of dissatisfaction with the best he can do that in moments of lassitude or anger with himself he will not care though the beholder be dissatisfied also. I believe there has only been one man who would not acknowledge this necessity and strove always to reach perfection. Leonardo. The end of his vain effort being merely that he would take ten years to a picture and leave it unfinished. And therefore, if we are to have great men working at all, or less men doing their best, the work will be imperfect however beautiful of human work none but what is bad can be perfect in its own bad way the second reason is that imperfection is in some sort essential to all that we know of life it is the sign of life in a mortal body that is to say of a state of progress and change nothing that lives is or can be rigidly perfect Part of it is decaying, part nascent. The foxglove blossom, a third part bud, a third part past, a third part in full bloom, is a type of the life of this world. And in all things that live there are certain irregularities and deficiencies which are not only signs of life but sources of beauty. No human face is exactly the same in its lines on each side no leaf perfect in its lobes, no branch in its symmetry. All admit irregularity as they imply change, and to banish imperfection is to destroy expression, to check exertion, to paralyze vitality. All things are literally better, lovelier, and more beloved for the imperfections which have been divinely appointed. That the law of human life may be effort, and the law of human judgment mercy accept this then for a universal law that neither architecture nor any other noble work of man can be good unless it be imperfect and let us be prepared for the otherwise strange fact which we shall discern clearly as we approach the period of the renaissance that the first cause of the fall of the arts of europe was a relentless requirement of perfection incapable alike either of being silenced by veneration for greatness, or softened into forgiveness of simplicity. Thus far, then, of the rudeness or savageness which is the first mental element of Gothic architecture. It is an element in many other healthy architectures also, as in Byzantine and Romanesque, but true Gothic cannot exist without it. The second mental element above-named was changefulness or variety. I have already enforced the allowing independent operation to the inferior workman, simply as a duty to him, and as ennobling the architecture by rendering it more Christian. We have now to consider what reward we obtain for the performance of this duty, namely the perpetual variety of every feature of the building. Whenever the workman is utterly enslaved, the parts of the building must of course be absolutely like each other for the perfection of his execution can only be reached by exercising him in doing one thing, and giving him nothing else to do. The degree in which the workman is degraded may be thus known at a glance, by observing whether the several parts of the building are similar or not. And if, as in Greek work, all the capitals are alike, and all the mouldings unvaried, then the degradation is complete. If, as in Egyptian or Ninevite work, though the manner of executing certain figures is always the same, the order of design is perpetually varied, the degradation is less total. If, as in Gothic work, there is perpetual change, both in design and execution, the workman must have been altogether set free. How much the beholder gains from the liberty of the labourer may perhaps be questioned in England where one of the strongest instincts in nearly every mind is that love of order which makes us desire that our house-windows should pair like our carriage-horses and allows us to yield our faith unhesitatingly to architectural theories which fix a form for everything and forbid variation from it i would not impeach love of order it is one of the most useful elements of the english mind It helps us in our commerce and in all purely practical matters, and it is in many cases one of the foundation stones of morality. Only do not let us suppose that love of order is love of art. It is true that order, in its highest sense, is one of the necessities of art, just as time is a necessity of music. But love of order has no more to do with our right enjoyment of architecture or painting than love of punctuality with the appreciation of an opera. Experience, I fear, teaches us that accurate and methodical habits in daily life are seldom characteristic of those who either quickly perceive or richly possess the creative powers of art. There is, however, nothing inconsistent between the two instincts, and nothing to hinder us from retaining our business habits and yet fully allowing and enjoying the noblest gifts of invention. We already do so in every other branch of art except architecture, and we only do not so there because we have been taught that it would be wrong. Our architects gravely inform us that, as there are four rules of arithmetic, there are five orders of architecture. We, in our simplicity, think that this sounds consistent and believe them they inform us also that there is one proper form for corinthian capitals another for doric and another for ionic we considering that there is also a proper form for the letters a b and c think that this also sounds consistent and accept the proposition understanding therefore that one form of the said capitals is proper and no other and having a conscientious horror of all impropriety we allow the architect to provide us with the said capitals of the proper form in such and such a quantity and in all other points to take care that the legal forms are observed which having done we rest in forced confidence that we are well housed but our higher instincts are not deceived we take no pleasure in the building provided for us resembling that which we take in a new book or a new picture We may be proud of its size, complacent in its correctness, and happy in its convenience. We may take the same pleasure in its symmetry and workmanship as in a well-ordered room or a skilful piece of manufacture, and this we suppose to be all the pleasure that architecture was ever intended to give us. The idea of reading a building, as we would read Milton or Dante, and getting the same kind of delight out of the stones as out of the stanzas, never enters our minds for a moment, and for good reason. There is indeed rhythm in the verses, quite as strict as the symmetries or rhythm of the architecture, and a thousand times more beautiful. But there is something other than rhythm. The verses were neither made to order nor to match, as the capitals were, and we have therefore a kind of pleasure in them other than a sense of propriety but it requires a strong effort of common sense to shake ourselves quit of all that we have been taught for the last two centuries, and wake to the perception of a truth just as simple and certain as it is new. That great art, whether expressing itself in words, colors, or stones, does not say the same thing over and over again. That the merit of architectural, as of every other art, consists in its saying new and different things, that to repeat itself is no more a characteristic of genius in marble than it is of genius in print and that we may without offending any laws of good taste require of an architect as we do of a novelist that he should be not only correct but entertaining yet all this is true and self-evident only hidden from us as many other self-evident things are by false teaching nothing is a great work of art for the production of which either rules or models can be given. Exactly so far as architecture works on known rules and from given models, it is not an art, but a manufacture, and it is, of the two procedures, rather less rational, because more easy to copy capitals or mouldings from Phidias and call ourselves architects, than to copy heads and hands from Titian and call ourselves painters. End of section 13